in Pinellas Park, W262CP Bayonet Point. Brought to you by Moss Nissan. Locations in Newport Ridge portions of this hour have been pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Odyssey. The following program was pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Up next is Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. I really think that even a rabbi who has not accepted the Lord Jesus as his Savior understands that the book of Esther is not an allegory. The book of Esther is not an illustration of the gospel. This rabbi correctly understands that it is God demonstrating how the Jewish people will survive, how Israel will survive. Throughout history, there have been those who either questioned or openly denounced the idea that the story of Esther is an account of actual historical events. Many have even done this with good intentions, seeking to preserve the reputation and integrity of the Bible. Some of them recognized that the story is not recorded in secular history. And this fact, coupled with the incredible sequence of events in the book, caused them to interpret the book as some kind of allegory with hidden spiritual meaning. Others, such as Martin Luther, have even been of the opinion that the book of Esther should not be accepted as part of the scriptures, since it contains no direct mention of God or even prayer. Yet those who reject the historical authenticity of the events told in this story are missing out on one of the most comforting stories in the scriptures. The book of Esther is a wellspring of encouragement because it clearly demonstrates the control which our God exercises over the events of our lives and over world history. We're glad you have joined us for another broadcast of Verse by Verse. We ended our last broadcast with things looking very grim for the people of Israel. Today, as Pastor Steve begins the next sermon in this series on the book of Esther, we'll see how God causes the fate of his chosen people to hinge upon one restless, sleepless night. Here's Pastor Steve to explain how it all unfolds. We'll be studying the book of Esther, so you might as well turn there. Esther chapter 6. Just a few introductory comments before we get into the text. Recently, someone who is familiar with the book of Esther someone outside of our church, asked me how I was applying the book of Esther to today. What was my application? What was my approach to it as I was teaching the book here at Lakeside? Now, why would any Christian ask a question like that? There's a good reason for that, because many Christians aren't sure what to do with the book of Esther. Uh, That is a strange book for many Christians, and maybe you are somewhat familiar with the various interpretations of Esther. Some want to set... Esther and Mordecai up as godly spiritual examples for us to follow, and so they present them that way. I heard a very well-known Bible teacher teach on Esther uh, through some cassette tapes that I was listening to, and uh, he was quite sure that we ought to follow the godly example of Esther and Mordecai. Others allegorize the book. They take it out of its historical setting, and they allegorize it. They have uh, Esther and Mordecai and Haman and the king standing for certain things. They're symbolic. Uh, They represent things. They have someone representing the Holy Spirit, and someone's representing uh, the Lord, and somebody's representing uh, salvation, and and someone else representing Satan, and all these things. and, And they make a whole allegory of this book. There are still others who see the gospel illustrated in this book, and they want to uh, 
uh, put the New Testament upon this book and they want to see, for instance, the king granting eternal life as he holds out the golden scepter to Esther. Now, there are other interpretations of this book. Those that I mentioned are those who believe the Bible. You ought to hear the interpretations of those who don't believe the Bible. But my response to this person who asked me the question about how uh, do I approach the book of Esther uh, was very simple. The theme of the book is the providence of God. God's preservation of his ancient people Israel through providence, his sovereignty. It's very obvious to me that that is the purpose of the book and that is the theme of the book and that is the thrust of the book and that is the heart of the book, that God preserves his people through Providence. And what is providence? It's the ordinary uh, events of life. It's not the miraculous. It's the ordinary mundane affairs of life. God is in control of that, and he will uh, control those things in order to accomplish his purpose. Now, I want you to know that uh, I think that's a very obvious interpretation of the book of Esther. I think if you take it in its historical, uh, grammatical context, you'll see that. And I was fascinated to read in the uh, crossroads section of the St. Pete Times, in the uh, that's the religious section, if you don't get the newspaper, uh, in the midst of all of the things concerning uh, Easter and the resurrection and Good Friday and, and Palm Sunday and all of these things, there's a little article called uh, Congregation B'nai Israel Plans Purim Celebration. Now, you understand that Purim is the holiday that that, uh, came out of the book of Esther. We'll see that uh, before too long, that that is the the holiday in which the Jewish people celebrate their deliverance from the uh, edict in which uh, they were all to be wiped out. At the end of this article, which is a very nice article about their celebration, but this is the last paragraph in this article. It says this, but along with this warning, and there was a certain warning that the rabbi gave, observed Rabbi Lusky, the story also, and I quote, this is what he says about Esther. This is his understanding of the book of Esther. It, it also stresses a profound optimism founded in a firm trust in God and his involvement in human history. The biblical narrative of the Purim episode gives us the historic perspective we need to understand more clearly the nature of Jewish survival and continuity. And I think he's got the point. I really think that even a a rabbi who uh, uh, has not accepted the Lord Jesus as his savior understands that the book of Esther is not an allegory. The book of Esther is not an illustration of the gospel. This rabbi correctly understands that it is God demonstrating how the Jewish people will survive, how Israel will survive. Now, we have seen as we've studied this book that God's name is not mentioned once. But if you've been with us for the last few weeks studying it, you would certainly see that his presence is obvious. His name doesn't have to be mentioned. His presence, his power, his working is obvious. And it is rather obvious to trace the hand of God throughout this book. For instance, we saw as the book opened up the promotion of Esther. Esther is a Jewish girl who has apparently grown up in Persia. And uh, she all of a sudden is in line to become queen. She enters a beauty contest. And God has given her magnificent beauty, and so she appeals to the king. And before you know it, this, this plain and yet beautiful Jewish girl 
is queen of the greatest empire of her day, Persia. The promotion of Esther, was God's hand in it? Certainly. Was it by accident? Of course not. God had her right where he wanted her, in spite of the fact that she was a disobedient Jewess. She should never have been in Persia. She should have been back in Israel. The edict was given, go back to the land. God's prophets had spoken, go back. It was God's plan that they be back in the land of Israel. So even in the midst of her sin and her disregard for the Lord, she never mentions prayer, never mentions the temple, never mentions Jerusalem, never mentions God, never mentions a longing to be involved in the sacrificial system. In spite of that, God promotes her and puts her in the place that he wants her to be. Then we saw the plot of Haman. Not only the promotion of Esther, but Haman is the adversary. He doesn't represent anybody. He is the adversary. He's just Haman, a rotten guy. And Haman decides because Mordecai, Esther's cousin, will not bow down to him. Haman decides that he's going to get Mordecai and he is going to do it by wiping out all the Jews. He's not just content to kill Mordecai, but he wants to kill every Jew in the empire. And so he comes up with this plan because he is very superstitious, uh, like the Persians were. He casts lots. He throws the dice to decide what day to do this. It's not an accident that the lots fall one year in advance. For As far as military strategy, that's a dumb thing to do. You don't warn the people that you're going to attack. You don't give them a year's notice. God was in it. It was no accident. God was in it. Because in the meantime, the Jewish people are going to discover God's plan for their survival. And then there's going to be time for another decree to be written by the king. And you will see as we progress in our study of Esther how God is going to use this to preserve his people. And so we see the hand of God and the promotion of Esther, the plot of Haman, and then the preservation of Israel. We began to look at that last week. Mordecai goes to Esther and he says, Esther, you have got to see the king and tell him that he must do something to preserve your people. Now, up to this point, she has been silent about her identity. Nobody knows that she's a Jew, except maybe some of the servants. Certainly the king does not know this. And she says, I can't. I can't go in to see the king. He hasn't called for me in 30 days. Kind of indicates what kind of a marriage they had. He said, he hasn't called for me in 30 days. Anybody who goes in unannounced, uninvited, uh, is killed, unless he extends to that person the golden scepter kind of a a rod, and if he waves that at you, you're in. If not, you're gone. And he says, Mordecai says, Esther, if you don't do it, God's going to deal with you. He will preserve people. Now, he doesn't use the name of God, but it's obvious that that's his thinking at least. Deliverance will come. In other words, he's saying, I know the Abrahamic covenant. I know that Genesis 12, 3 says, I will bless them that bless thee, and I will curse them that curse thee. I know that God will preserve us, and God will curse you, Esther, if you do not do what's right in this point. And God will preserve us, if not from you, from some other place. Where? I don't know what he was thinking, where it would come from, but that's what he said. And Esther makes those very dramatic words. She said, I'll do it, and if I perish, then I perish. I mean, she she figures she's going to die anyway. If she doesn't go in to see the king, God's going to strike her dead. 
And if she goes in to see the king and he doesn't extend to her the golden scepter, she's basically saying courageously, I would assume, if I perish, then I perish. What difference does it make? I'll, I'll sacrifice my life for my people. It's a great statement. I don't think it's an example of godliness, but it is an example of courage. And God's hand is in this because in spite of the fact that she hadn't been to see the king for 30 days, she goes to see him without being invited, and, and God controls the heart of the king, and he extends to her the golden scepter. Now, remember, you, say, you know, you might think, well, of course, it's his wife. This is the same guy who a few years earlier got rid of Vashti. This is not one who is particularly sensitive. This is not one who had a, a tremendous love relationship with his wife or wives. He would dispose of Vashti just because his counselor said you got to get rid of her. So uh, God's hand is in this, and so we've traced the providence of God. Now we move to chapter 6, and I trust that you are turned there to chapter 6, and we continue the preservation of Israel. Just because he extended the golden scepters to her doesn't mean that Israel is delivered yet. She now just has the opportunity to ask him a favor, and he says to her, uh, whatever you want, I'll give you half the empire, you just name it. And she said, and I told you because it was the culture of the day, as I learned from some friends just a few weeks ago, that uh, Persians were not up front. They, they did not make requests right away. So she has a banquet. She invites the king and Haman there. And he says, the king says, all right, what do you want? Uh, whatever you want, half of the empire. And she said, well, I'll tell you tomorrow. And the reason she did that is that was her way of saying it's really important. So that's where we are in the in the narrative. That's that's where we're at. Uh, Esther is about to have the king and the prime minister, Haman, uh, for a banquet the next day. In the meantime, Haman is so infuriated with Mordecai, he decides to hang him on the gallows. Uh, he'd stick a spike through him and hang him 75 feet high so that everybody could see him. And it would be a lesson to all that when Haman passes by, you bow down to him. That's the lesson. That was the advice that it was given to him by his wife and his friends. And that's where we are. Remember last week we said, like continued story reading, we have to say, but we see our time is up. Well, our time continues now. The preservation of Israel. Verse 1 of chapter 6 says, during the night, the king could not sleep. Let's just stop there for a moment. The king could not sleep. What a strange statement. You ever hear the expression that God works in strange ways? God works in mysterious ways. There is, there is uh, tremendous truth to that statement because the providence of God even works in sleep or sleeplessness. Now, that may seem like a very simple phrase. During the night, the king could not sleep. It's a tremendous phrase, though. It is the night before Esther's banquet, and Xerxes can't sleep. Why couldn't he sleep? From a human standpoint, I don't know. You know, maybe he was anxious over the anticipation of Esther's request, or maybe he had one too many Persian pizzas before he went to sleep. I don't know. Why couldn't he sleep? I don't know. There are some nights that I can't fall asleep. I don't know. And we are not told in the, in the word of God the human reason why the king couldn't sleep. But we do know the divine reason, and this is once again the hand of God. Is there anything more mundane than sleep? Remember we said that providence is God working out his plan in the ordinary mundane things of life. Is there anything more mundane than sleep? 
No, the answer is no. Okay, it says, during the night, the king could not sleep, so he gave an order to bring the book of records, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. He tried to cure his royal insomnia by reading the chronicles of the kingdom. Probably the most boring thing that he could find. If you've ever read the minutes of a meeting, so they're just usually boring. Maybe he was interested, I don't know. But we know that from uh, historical records that Persians were very careful to keep accurate records. That was something they they really did, Uh, especially pertaining to political things in the kingdom, uh, political events and the happenings of kingdom life. It would be equivalent to our uh, congressional record if you you want some kind of uh, equivalency. So a servant of the king had to stay up all night reading to Xerxes. And that Xerxes isn't going to get any sleep. His servant's going to stay awake too. It's a rotten job, but somebody had to do it, right? And by divine providence, guess what they read? Or guess what that servant read? Now, here's just a pagan servant thousands of years ago in history reading to a pagan king, and God is involved. Now, that's exciting. That is really exciting because there's nothing too small for God to be involved in. It says in verse 2, and it was found written what Mordecai had reported concerning Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who were doorkeepers, that they had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus or King Xerxes. And what's he talking about? We turn back to chapter 2, verse 21. I told you when we went over this some weeks ago that this was a very pivotal portion of the book. And the writer just kind of passed by it, but now he's he's referring back to it. In chapter 2, verse 21, looks like a very insignificant event. It says, in those days, while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, and that does not mean that he was just leaning upon the fence, not knowing what to do. It meant that he was a judge, some kind of a court official. Uh, Big Than and Teresh, two of the king's officials, from those who guarded the door, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Zahazurus. But the plot became known to Mordecai, and he told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. And when the plot was investigated and found to be so, they were both hanged on a a gallows, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the king's presence. Years have passed. In fact, it's probably about five years ago that this event happens. And of all the things that could have been read by the servants, by this time Xerxes has had 12 years in office. Five years ago, this happened. Of all the things they could have read, the servant chose this one incident. Is it by accident? Coincidence? Did the pages just kind of fly open to that page? Certainly not. Why would God want the king to hear about this incident involving Mordecai? It's very important. Look at verse 3. And the king said, What honor... Or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this. Has he, has he been rewarded is what he's saying. Then the king's servants who attended him said nothing has been done for him. Mordecai has not been rewarded for his loyalty. Nobody has thanked Mordecai. He's an unsung hero. He saved the king's life. It's true the king was, had assassination attempts all the time on his life. But in this case, nobody reported it in the sense that they wrote it down, or or they did write it down, but nobody came forward and gave Mordecai his reward. He saved the king's life. 
This was a very significant oversight, very important. And King Xerxes would not allow this to happen. He did not want oversights like this. Why? If a Persian king failed to publicly, and, and I might add spectacularly, reward people who reported attempts and assassination plots, and you know what's going to happen? Other people who hear assassination plots might not want to risk their lives reporting it to the king or his officials. And if others who hear it don't report it, it could end up in death for Xerxes. So it was very important for the king. It was for his own good and welfare that when the king heard that there was an assassination attempt and someone reported it, he would certainly and spectacularly reward that, that loyalty. Do you see the point? I mean, this is not just an incidental thing. This is, this could mean his life. So he wants to make sure that he sets an example of Mordecai so others might be encouraged to do as, as Mordecai did. Why couldn't the king fall asleep? Whether it was Persian pizzas or hamburgers or anxiety, we don't know. But we do know because God didn't want him to sleep. God wanted him to read about Mordecai and the oversight and rewarding him. Why? Because God is preparing this king, pagan as he is, one who is probably uh, uh, involved in astrology and, and Zoroastrianism, which is an occult and involved in astrology, God wants this king to act favorably towards Mordecai and ultimately the Jewish people and unfavorably towards Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And so you see how God was involved in Esther's delay. Even that delay, had she asked the king right away, I want you to deliver my people and so forth, it wouldn't have had the same impact. God was involved even in Esther's delay. Even though it was part of the Persian culture to not be upfront, God was involved even in that. Because he wanted his timing to be, he wanted the king's timing to be what his timing was. God is always concerned about timing. I'll never forget the great joy in reading through John chapter 13 and 14 and, and then the upper room discourse and then the, the, uh, arrest of the Lord begin to take place, you see that everything is timed accurately. The Lord says to Judas, he said, whatever you do, do it quickly. And you see that even though Satan had entered into Judas, he was demon-possessed, satanically possessed, Christ is ordering him. And he's on God's timetable that God is in charge of time, not just events, but time. And sometimes we worry about that. Is God controlling the time? He certainly is. And uh, when Christ died, he died as the Lamb of God. He died as the Passover Lamb, and it was all planned out that way. And everything was moving towards that uh, culmination of that event, and it was at the right time. When he came into this world, the Bible says, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. God is involved not only in events, but in the timing of those events. And so he's involved in this time, too. Let me apply it for a moment. Let's go back to sleep. When you can't sleep at night, and many of us have difficulty at times sleeping. There are some times I'm out like that, and other times I just can't sleep. I want you to know that God is involved. I want you to know that God is still involved. You know, the Lord has accomplished very wonderful things in the hearts of people while they laid awake at night. In fact, Psalm 4, 4 says this. If I can find it, I'm going to read it to you. But Psalm 4, 4 tells us about David as he would lay awake at night. The scripture says this. In the second part of the verse, meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. 
God is saying, meditate, think, chew it over, consider these things. It seems to me that the reading of the official records would have certainly put anyone to sleep. But God not only caused King Xerxes to listen, but to evaluate what was being read. He noticed that there was no record of something being done for the man who revealed a plot on his life. As a result, this sleepless night of Xerxes turned out to be a key moment in the history of the world. The nation of Israel has provided some of the most telling examples of God's providence and control. From simple things like this sleepless night to horrific injustices like the Holocaust, God has knit together the events of human history in a way that ensures that his promises to Israel will be fulfilled. Pastor Steve has written a book that helps explain why God is so interested in this nation of people. By methodically examining several key chapters in the book of Romans, Steve helps to clarify how Israel fits into God's plan for the future and why it's important for that nation to survive. The title of the book is God's Plan for Israel, and you can order a copy today by calling us at 727-239-030.